invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me now to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 31 today. Remember, uh, it's been a couple of weeks, but in the first 13 verses of Luke 16, Jesus was speaking directly to his disciples about their use of money and possessions, um, saying that disciples are to be faithful with what has been entrusted to them, that the way disciples use their, their money and their possessions is to uh, correspond with their understanding of the world, their understanding of the world to come, their understanding of eternity. And he concluded, you remember, with that challenging statement that no one can love both God and money. Uh, you can only love one. You can't love and serve both at the same time. And the Pharisees over here what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and they scoff at him, they ridicule him, and Jesus responds in our text today with a parable about hell, and uh, that is what we're going to consider this morning. But before we do, we've congregationally asked for uh, the Lord to speak to us in his word, but let me pray personally and ask for the Lord's help as I preach. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. Uh, in the midst of uh, a world full of spin and confusion, you speak with clarity and honesty. And as one um, given the privilege and the solemn responsibility of handling your word, I pray that you would give me grace to declare the gospel with an open statement of the truth. Uh, Lord, we know it's not entertainment that we need this morning. It's not... Uh, a show of rhetoric or uh, human eloquence or human wisdom, but a demonstration of power. Uh, but the power comes from you alone. So come Holy Spirit and minister to us the word of Christ. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Luke 16, beginning in verse 14. Let's hear God's word. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that is Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, our topic today is highly unpopular. Uh, it's, uh, It's enormously unfashionable. But Jesus spoke about it often. Uh, Christians down through the years have been deeply convinced about this topic, only until very recently uh, it has been put on the back burner. And uh, people seek to suppress what God says about this topic, and it's usually met with either laughter or scoffing or ridicule or self-righteous moral outrage. Uh, The topic that we are going to think about today is the topic of, of hell. And the question that we want to ask is, who goes there? Uh, my, my, aim, my aim today is, is really straightforward. Um, I, I want us to understand what hell is. I want to warn us about hell. I want you to warn others about hell. And I want all of us to avoid hell at all costs. And let me just say at the beginning that I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not ashamed to, to speak about this, this topic with you. I'm I'm no means excited about it. I didn't look forward to talking about hell, but I'm not embarrassed by it. You know, there is there is a wave of fashionable preaching sweeping across the land today that is attempting to help God with his so-called PR problem. But in doing so, what's taking place is the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Eternal punishment is being turned on its head with an all-new gospel that is really no gospel at all. So there's there's some shaming going on within Christian circles for talking talking about the topic of hell. But there's surely a lot of shaming within our culture. Talk of hell is now 
said to be the stuff of uh, fundamentalist bullying preachers who want to just scare you into belief and discipleship. And we want to say um, that we reject that outright. But we also want to say that if hell is real, then it's surely not bullying to tell people about it. In fact, it would be profoundly unloving to not speak to people about the reality of, of hell. So I wanna, what I want to do today is I want to look at this parable and I want to make four observations about hell. And, and then I want us to see the parable in its context while we ask the question, how do people get there? And so hell and, and how to get there. Uh, the first observation we, we need to make about hell is that hell is a real place. Um, this story is, in my view, a parable, but hell, uh, Gehenna, and Hades is repeatedly understood by Jesus and the rest of the Bible as, as a real place. We're not dealing here then with myth or make-believe or mere conjecture, just as there is a real heaven to which uh, the souls of believers go to be with Christ when they die, and just as there is a, a real new heavens and new earth received for believers, um, received at the resurrection of the dead, so too there is a real place called hell. And Jesus insists on the reality of hell. In this section of Luke's gospel alone, from chapter 13, verse 22, through chapter 17, Jesus alludes to hell in at least, on at least five different occasions. He says things like, Enter through the narrow door. Many will strive, but will not be able Depart from me, you evildoers. There, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. None of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. And, and then in the gospel of Luke as a whole, Jesus alludes to hell again and again and again. It was, you might say, a part of Jesus' gospel preaching. Repent, or you all will likewise perish. And so Jesus spoke often of, of hell. And that's surprising, and maybe for several reasons, but you know, today I think, it's, I think it's still the general sentiment that Jesus is this loving, compassionate figure. Um, and surely he is. He spent his time with tax collectors and sinners. He went about doing good and showing mercy. And it's that Jesus, it's that Jesus who spoke and warned people regularly about hell. So that's the first observation. Hell is a real place. Second, hell is a place of conscious punishment. And you can see that in verse 23, where the rich man is described as being in torment. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. And in verse 24, he says, I'm in anguish. And we see it again in Verses 27 and 28. Now the, the New Testament, it, it depicts hell as a place of fire. Gehenna was, was the name of the great garbage dump that was perpetually burning outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So, so Jesus is speaking in metaphor to describe what it is like to be under the judgment of God. And at least in my own, my own view... Um, people may differ on this, and that's okay. But in my own view, I think 
medieval artistry has etched upon our collective imaginations some distorted, some distorted visions of hell, you know, a place of literal flames. But I think the symbolism, the metaphor, is, is meant to describe a reality, a real place of conscious distress without relent. And it's not that God is absent either when we think about hell. Hell is not the absence of the presence of God as some people conceive of it today. Some people defining hell will say hell is separation from God. And surely that is one way the New Testament speaks about it. But it's not separation from God entirely. It's separation from the goodness of God. Separation from the blessing of God, from the favor of God, the kindness of God, the common grace of God that has pervaded everyone's life from birth to death. But God is present in hell and he's present in his justice and in his wrath against sin. And so hell is a place of punishment whose occupants experience the punishment of God forever. So hell is a real place, a place of conscious punishment. And then third, it's a place without an exit. That that point is stressed in in, in the parable in verse 26, where we read, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I think we need to say, as, as just an aside here, that the, the idea of purgatory has no place in the teaching of Jesus or in the teaching of the Bible as a whole. This idea of purgatory as a, a kind of rehab clinic where you get cleaned up and purged and suffer for your sins so then you can pass on into heaven. That idea has no basis in the Bible It is based solely upon the traditions of men, and so it ought to be rejected. Furthermore, as we just think about some applications of what Jesus is teaching here, Jesus' teaching challenges any form of annihilationism or universalism. Annihilationism says that the the souls of unbelievers, whether at death or perhaps after a period of judgment, just cease to exist. There is no consciousness after death or after a period of judgment. Uh, universalism, on the other hand, says, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe some people do go into uh, hell for a time of judgment, but, but eventually everyone will be cleared and brought into heaven. Some even say that Satan and the demons themselves will be saved. But, but I think we need to say the Bible does not speak of the annihilation of souls. It speaks of the punishment of eternal fire. And the Bible does not speak of everyone making it to heaven. It speaks of a great chasm that is fixed so there is no crossing from the one place to the other. So hell is a real place of conscious punishment Without an exit. You know, most, most people today ignore 
or, or scoff at the idea of, of a final judgment. They, they avoid thinking about it most of the time. And when the uncomfortable idea confronts them, they ease their conscience by convincing themselves that they'll be able to work through it somehow. They'll be able to broker a deal with God. And isn't it interesting that here you have the rich man trying to cut a deal. He's still deal-making in Hades. But you see, Abraham insists we won't be able to negotiate our way out of hell or purchase for ourselves any relief. So it's a place without an exit. And then finally, fourthly, it's a place that's populated. You know, many, many will... Many will agree to the idea, yeah, you know, there must be something like hell. But either nobody will be there or hardly anybody will be there. The, the universalist, again, says that ultimately everyone will, hell will be vacated and everyone will be brought into heaven. Hell, hell exists perhaps for Satan and his demon and demons and the, the real wretches of of humanity, the, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Pol Pots and the, the, the serial killers and kidnappers and, and, and on and on we could go. Th- th- those sorts of people, perhaps. But not, but not your average Joe. Uh, but the teaching of Jesus is that hell will be populated by real people. People you and I know. You know, I was, um, just this week, I, I was at the grocery store picking up some groceries for Kelsey on Friday, and I was standing in, in, uh, in the grocery aisle trying to check out, and I looked across um, to another register, and there was, a, it looked like, he looked like he was some sort of security guard, and he was checking out, being helped by a giant eagle employee, and the thought just crossed my mind. Hell is populated with real people. I don't know where those two individuals stand before the Lord. But people who may have even appeared to be good, upstanding folks. You know, people will respond to this and say, no, 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 no. God God wouldn't do something like that. God can't be like that. I won't believe in a God like that. But dear friends, that... That actually says more about you than it does about God. Because God's judgment will, God's judgment will never be unjust. Because he is by nature just. No one will be condemned on the basis of false charges. No one will be held accountable to things they didn't know. No, no condemnation will be above and beyond what the sin merits. God's judgment will always perfectly fit the crime. But maybe, maybe we balk at the idea that hell is populated because we have yet to understand the profound wrongness of a life lived in rebellion against our creator. We, we, think, we think sin is a small thing Because we have such a small view of God and such a limited understanding of his holiness and his justice. God takes sin infinitely seriously because he is infinitely holy and just. A second 
of sin against God is infinitely wrong. So we need to remember, we need to remember today, Jesus, Jesus taught about hell more than anyone else. Jesus, Jesus went to the cross to save his people from hell. The church has always believed in hell on the basis of the Bible. It's just that in our very small corner of the world, in a very restricted period of time, we live in a time where man has begun to think very much of himself and very little of God. And as a result, people scoff at the very idea of hell and shame anyone who would take it seriously. But friends, I want you to take it seriously. Because hell is a real place. A place of conscious punishment. A place without an exit. And a place that's populated. So how does one get there? That's the question that we we need to ask. And I think this passage gives us a two-part answer. The the answers go hand in hand. They go together, but we're going to look at them one at a time. Uh, The first part of the answer to the question, how how do people get to hell, is that those who count as precious priority everything the world holds dear are on their way to hell. Those who count as precious priority the things the world holds most dear are on their way to hell. Uh, The parable is told by Jesus to drive home a point, to understand a parable. You know, you you can't rip it out of its context. You've got to look at it in its context. And the context in this case is who gets, who gets to heaven? And Jesus is just dealing with the other side of the issue here. And the rich man in the parable is a warning to Jesus' opponents who are ridiculing his teaching. So the first point is that the, the things which hold priority for them, the things that govern their lives, is really everything the world holds dear. Their, their priority, their governing concern, their ambition is not for God at all. They are for, they are concerned about, impressing men, rising to prominence among men, enjoying the approval of men, you know, reputation, financial acquisition, social standing, prosperity, comfort. That is really all that mattered to them at the end of the day. This is what filled their minds. These are the things that captivated their hearts. This is what they really spent all of their time thinking about. Now, now remember that just before this, Jesus was speaking about eternity and his disciples' possessions. Disciples live with a, with a kingdom of God agenda. They, they deploy their resources, what has been entrusted to them, not just their money, but all that they are and all that they have for, for God's purposes, which is to see, ultimately, which is to see sinners rescued from sin and death and eternal destruction. And how do, the, how do the Pharisees respond to God's agenda? The Pharisees heard Jesus say, you cannot serve God and money. And verse 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed Jesus. So, so what is their priority? Their priority, money, possessions, personal advancements, social status, religious standing, public recognition, comfort, pleasure, luxury, you name it. So much so 
that when Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money, their instinctual reaction is to scoff. To be honest with you, when, when I'm preaching God's word, I, I would, oh, I'd love to see everyone em- embrace what is being said in, in faith, but um, I'd rather see someone respond the way the Pharisees do than to just sit there in a cold passivity. <laughs> you can tell they actually understand or t- are hearing the implications of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is striking a nerve with these Pharisees. And take a look at verse 15. And, and while I read it, just, just ask, you know, what are, what are these guys really concerned with? Whose opinion matters to them? What are, what are they living for? Jesus, <coughs> Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, so what men applaud, what men ooh and awe at, is rubbish in God's sight. That's what Jesus is saying. So I think here's the first shock of this passage, of this parable. Those who have the mere appearance of godliness, those who think they can establish right standing with God by gaining the approval of men, those who rely on financial success, social standing, and standing within a religious community, those people are on their way to hell. People who pretend to be something on the outside when they are in fact the opposite on the inside, those people are on their way to hell, Jesus is saying. Religious, moral, respectable, upright people. See what a gut check. That, that must have been to the Pharisees, and as it still is today. You know, these, these were the Pharisees, the men approved of by men. Uh, the, people that, the, the men that people in the community looked up to. Uh, the people who were really serious about their Bibles. Who were concerned about maintaining the holiness of the, of the covenant community. Men who were concerned about living by the book. Spiritual elites, Jesus is saying, such are on their way to hell. And the signal of that, the signal of that is that they count as precious priority the things that this world holds most dear. So the rich man, he he represents the Pharisees. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously Every day. He's rich, dressed in finest, the finest clothing he could get his hands on in that day, feasting on you know, gourmet cuisine, but no concern whatsoever for what God cares about. No, no heart for the things that God is concerned about. His life, you see, is one of appearance and self-indulgence. His money, his money, his resources, his possessions are deployed to make him look important in the eyes of others and to please himself. You see, what Jesus is teaching us in in Luke 16, and he did this in the first 13 verses too, that the use of our possessions 
reveals where our hearts really are. You can't avoid it. And so this man, he loved money. He wanted to justify himself before men. He sought the praises and recognition of men, and he was on his way to Hades. See, hell, hell is real. Hell is a place of conscious punishment. Hell is a place of no return. Hell is populated, and it's populated by people whose primary priority and concern is for the things of this world, not the things that really matter to God. Well, let's go to the second part of the answer. How does one get there? The second part of the answer is those who will not listen to God and repent. I want to I suggest now, and hopefully you'll see this by the end, I want to suggest that this is, this is a message of hope. I want, you to, I want you to look at the closing words of, of the parable and the words preceding the parable. Because again, context is key. You know, yes, the, the parable involves a profound reversal. Um, the rich man living in luxury... Uh, poor man Lazarus begged. Now the poor man is exalted in heaven and the rich man is begging in, uh, in a place of punishment. And, and though the reversal is a significant theme, it's actually a major theme throughout all of Luke's gospel, I want to suggest to you that it's not really the sting in the tail. The sting in the tail of this parable is that an individual, that is that if an individual has failed to listen to God's word today, no amount of supernatural, spectacular signs from God will ever convince them. Uh, so this rich man's destiny, this is the key I want you to understand. And, and, um, and Abraham is making this clear about this rich man's brothers, that destiny was decided by their response to God's word when they heard it. Now look at verse 27. The rich man said, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. It's interesting. He's still, he's still ordering people around, isn't he? He couldn't lift a finger to help Lazarus when he was on earth, and now he wants him to do him some favors. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. <clears throat> But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have, they have the Old Testament. They have the word of God given through Moses and the prophets. It was given to, to, lead, to expose sin and to lead them to repentance, to bring them to deep conviction of sin and to reveal the way of salvation. But he said, no, Father Abraham... But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent, right? If they see a miraculous sign, if they see supernatural evidence, they will repent. And Jesus said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now you see the assumption there, the the man or woman who, who turns a deaf ear to God's word in the Bible and refuses to listen will reject all forms of evidence, no matter how powerful 
or persuasive. You know, you sometimes hear people say, well, if God, would just, if God would just show up, if God would just give me a sign, if God would just reveal himself to me in some sort of supernatural, miraculous way, yeah, then I'd believe. Well, I think the right response to that is no, 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 you, no, you would not. If you're not prepared to sincerely hear God's word, you will not be persuaded by anything else. And so according to Jesus, if we are listening to to Moses and the prophets, we have what we need so that we do not make the same mistake as the Pharisees and say to ourselves, I'm right with God because I live a, a happy, successful, easygoing, comfortable, moral, upright life. Dear friend, if that's how you justify yourself before God. You are not right with God. Because the word of God tells us that we are all sinners. We are all moral failures. Rebels against the God who made us. But Moses and the prophets not only are given to expose sin. God's word also reveals God's way to get right with him. And so you read Moses and the prophets and it it speaks of a savior. It speaks of a way of salvation. It pictures the work of the savior. The whole sacrificial system teaches us about the necessity of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And the prophets speak of the servant of the Lord who would come and take the sin and the iniquity of his people upon his own back and die in their place. And so says Jesus, if this rich man refuses to listen to the law and the prophets, then he won't be persuaded even if someone rises to the dead to speak to him. No miracle will persuade him. No no sign or wonder will ever convince him. That is not the function of miracles in scripture. Now, if you jump back to verses 16 and 17, you'll see all of this getting worked out in context. Uh, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. In other words, everything the Old Testament looked forward to is here now in Jesus. But in verse 17, don't, don't think that that means because we've gone from Old Testament to New Testament, from promise to fulfillment, to that now the standard of God's law has been lowered or done away with, The law still exposes sin and failure. So take, for example, the issue of divorce. That's why Jesus, I think, brings this passage up here. Uh, You know, maybe you read read through this story and there's this single verse about divorce. um, And and, and you kind of wonder, what's, what's this doing here? Why is this in this passage? Well, it's because the Pharisees were practicing divorce on an industrial scale. During Jesus' lifetime, the the men of Israel were divorcing and remarrying left and right. You know, for for virtually any reason whatsoever, according to some rabbinical courts, men could acquire divorce certificates and go on to remarry. And so we need to understand this in context. Jesus is exposing and criticizing unlawful, unlawful, biblical divorce and that's why he says everyone who divorces his wife 
and marries another commits adultery. Right? You, you guys who, who say you live according to the word of God, which says you know, God designed marriage to be a covenant for life, you sin with your unlawful divorces, and then you add sin to sin because you should have never divorced your first spouse to begin with. Now, of course, we need to, we need to say the Bible, the Bible teaches clearly elsewhere that there are times when, when divorce is permissible, when divorce is a legitimate option, even for the believer. Um, on the grounds of sexual immorality and the grounds of, of willful desertion. You look at Matthew 19, uh, uh, Exodus 21, connected to 1 Corinthians 7. God does not intend to bind someone to a spouse for a lifetime who has no interest in keeping their marriage vows. So we need, this, we need to be loud and clear about that. What Jesus is rebuking here is men who divorce for any and all reasons, and that is why he speaks in absolute terms here without the qualifications given elsewhere in Scripture. You have to see who Jesus is speaking to to understand this verse. You know, for example, uh, one, one rabbinical court allowed husbands to get a divorce if their wife, this is, this is written down, okay, as a, as a, a guiding principle. Uh, husbands were permitted to divorce their wives if she overcooked supper. So in other words... If she did anything you didn't like, based upon their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, actually their misinterpretation of Deuteronomy 24, you could get a divorce. And these are the same guys, these are the same guys who are saying, we're right with God, we, we keep his laws, we obey his commands. And Jesus is saying, you hypocrites, if you just hold up the plumb line of God's law to your life for a moment, we'll see how crooked you really are. And it shows, it reveals that you are not really listening to God's word. And the rich man, you see, he illustrates, illustrates someone who seeks to justify themselves while counting as most precious the stuff of this world and not listening to the word of God. And so as we look at, these, at this passage, we, we learn about hell and, and how to get there. That hell is a real place. Hell is a place of conscious punishment, a place without exit, and a place that's populated. And you get there by counting as most precious the things this world holds most dear and by not listening to the word of God. His word of God, which exposes us for for what we really are. Moral failures and, and need of rescue. And this, this, same, this same word tells you about and invites you to the one who can rescue you from your sin and failure and guilt. Jesus Christ. He's, he's all yours. Everything he has secured for his people is freely given to you if you will listen rightly to his word. And so my question, my simple question to you today is, is, are you listening to God's word? Honestly, sincerely, are you listening to the word of God? Don't, don't make the mistake of stopping your ears, of plugging your ears, of filling 
your mind with other things when you are encountering God through his word. You, you don't know. You don't know if you will get another chance to hear his word. You know, this, um, this week I found out my next door neighbor died. Um, a few months ago I saw him and everything appeared fine. Uh, I saw him a few weeks ago. Uh, as Kelsey and I and the kids were returning from Kelsey's parents for Christmas and he was out in his front lawn and I immediately knew something was seriously wrong. So I jumped out of my car and I I went over and I started talking to him and he told me he found out he had cancer. It was three weeks ago and I found out midweek that he died. You know, over the years since I have been, uh, since we've been in Westmont, he and I have talked. He loved to talk politics. He was a grumpy old man. He would talk politics and I would talk about another kingdom that is better than all of the other kingdoms in this world. I tried to talk to him about Jesus, but I never, I never thought that the last time I talked to him at Christmas would be the last time that I spoke to him. And I wish, I wish more than anything that I had the opportunity to go to him and have a frank conversation about these things. Well, friends, we have the opportunity today. Do not take the word of God lightly. Because you don't know, you don't know when it will be the last time that you hear it. See, we are all, we are all sinners. We all need to repent. We all need a Savior, and God has graciously provided that Savior in His own Son. But those who go on insisting upon their innocence and their acceptability while not listening to the Word of God will go to hell. That's the message of the Lord Jesus. May we hear it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the death of Jesus, for our sin. We praise you that he experienced judgment so that we could come to him and find forgiveness and rest and rescue. And we we thank you that he came to seek that which was lost. We pray now that you would give us your Holy Spirit to hear what he is saying to um, his church And may we believe in faith and receive with love all that the Lord Jesus would say to his people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.